back, everybody. You're listening to another episode of Driving to the Basket, part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I am Mike, coming to you with less than 10 games remaining in the season. Uh, tonight's loss against the Atlanta Hawks was game number 72. Something worth noting, the Pistons are at this point more or less locked into a bottom three record alongside the San Antonio Spurs and the Houston Rockets. The Hornets have been doing pretty well lately, despite the absence of Lamella Ball and the fact that they're really relying a ton on high usage High volume, low efficiency, Kelly Oubre and, and Terry Rozier. Uh, in any case, uh, with nine games left for each team, they are seven wins ahead. Needless to say, for a team like the Pistons, uh, that has been losing a great deal for a long time, that's extremely unlikely. So the Pistons are two, two games clear of the Rockets, who have played 74. Uh, excuse me, today's game is game 73. Excuse me. And the Spurs, who played 72, uh, the Pistons are three games clear of them. Both of those teams are doing better lately. So i uh, just like to remind everybody that, yeah, the teams in the bottom four, excuse me, the bottom three all have the same odds in terms of uh, at all of the top four lottery slots. However, being the worst team means you can only fall to number five. Being the second worst team means you can fall to number six. Third worst team can fall to number seven, and so on down the line. Though once you get to... Number four, uh, your chances of falling four slots uh, become tiny, like 2.2 for number four. And then you're down to 0.6 for number five, falling to number nine. 0.2, uh, excuse me, five falling to number nine. 0.2 falling from six to 10 and then less than, yeah, basically nothing when you get beyond that. So in any case, if you're going to be bad, it's best to be really bad. The Pistons right now are really bad through a combination of having kind of a mess of a roster and basically being without a lot of their best players. You know, one question I would reasonably have if I were more, you know, if, if I were a fan just kind of occasionally check out on the Pistons is where on earth is everybody? And the answer is that they're either being set or the team is being safe with them. The idea right now is to lose. Boyan may have an injury to his Achilles. Um, but I'm sure the team would just as soon sit him for the sake of losing. Uh, Burks just really seems to be on vacation. And that right there is two of your top three scorers on the season, arguably your two best scorers on the season. Uh, Boyan, of course, averaging a, a highly efficient uh, 21.5 points per game on a high creation load, scoring at all three levels efficiently. Um, and as you can probably tell by my change in voice, I just stepped away to do something about congestion. Allergy season's hitting real hard. It's March. That happens. All right. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Alec Burks, uh, also very reliable for the team. Does quite a bit of creation. Very reliable floor spacer. It, it's kind of a bummer that the team's two best players on the season have ended up to be veterans over the age of 30. Alec Burks is 31. Boyan's 33. I mean, he really would have appreciated seeing one of the youth, being one of the top scorers. I mean, obvious, technically up there on drastically worse efficiency. And I think Cape would have been there, but... You know, he only played 12 games and he was injured for all 12 of those, uh, whatever the case. So, I mean, these guys are pretty much just being held out. You know, Boyan may be a little bit injured, but these guys are being held out. I mean, the Pistons have an excuse of some kind. The NBA really doesn't crack down on this sort of thing. Last season, the Thunder waved a player for playing too well. <laughs> so it just doesn't, it doesn't happen. And then you have four young players who are out. If you want to call Diallo, you're really one of the youth at this point, since uh, I think the, really the ship has sailed on him because he still can't shoot. He's no, he's not even, he's nowhere closer to shooting than he was two years ago. Uh, whatever the case, Levers is out. Diallo is out. Duran is out, has been out a lot. Stewart is probably out for the rest of the season. I, I, the, the Pistons, I mean, the mo the last two seasons has not been it has been to get the young guys as much in the way of reps as the Pistons can. It has not been to sit these guys. 
So my guess is that it's a mix of genuine injuries and the Pistons wanting to take no chances at this point. I mean, a young player at the end of the season, when you're not trying to win anybody's anyway is injured, you just let them sit out. Now, the upshot for those of us watching these drudgerous last however many games and the rest of the season is that the rosters being put out there are not very exciting at all. And that sucks. It's how it is. We're on the home stretch. The Pistons want to lose. Now, it's really only looking at this point like a top three draft, sadly. But the Pistons lock down one of those bottom three slots, which they more or less have already. You've got uh, around a 40% chance of picking top three. Of course, number one is the big prize this year. And then you're going to fall to five at the lowest, though. If the Pistons fall to four or five, that's kind of going to hurt. But that's true of the Spurs and the Rockets as well, or whoever ends up in the bottom two, you know, in the bottom three. All right. So, yeah, not fun. Nine games left. And I'm not going to be sad when this season is over. However, after the end of the season and the final game of the season for the Pistons, April 9th, we have to wait about five and a half weeks until the draft lottery on the 16th of May, and then another five and a half weeks until the actual draft on June the 22nd. So that's, yeah, 11 weeks. I mean, getting close to three months there um, is pretty brutal, to be honest. That, that's a long, long wait. So I hope you all enjoy the playoffs like I do. I love watching the NBA playoffs from start to finish. And, but it's going to be a long wait until anything really exciting happens with the Pistons or disappointing, depending on the, the outcome of the lottery. So uh, one subject I've been asked to cover, uh, this comes off of Pistons Discord. I talk of, you know, if the Pistons don't get number one, they get number two and number three, you know, hypothetically, would you package that for me, Cole Bridges? So uh, this leaves aside whether Brooklyn would do it or not. And Brooklyn, I'll remind everybody, has no real incentive to tank. Uh, because they owe so much. I mean, they owe picks and pick swaps to use them for the foreseeable future. And Houston is presumably going to be an upward trajectory, though one never knows. I mean, the team's a bit of a mess right now. They've got a lot of promising youth, but they're a bit of a mess. Uh, you've got, say, you know, your backcourt of, uh, sorry, I mean, Kevin Porter Jr. is pretty troubled, very lacking in maturity and highly volatile. Uh, Jalen Green is has a lot of potential, but seems like kind of a douchebag, too. The team doesn't really seem to have a leader of any sort. There seems to be a lot of dysfunction there, but who knows? Uh, in any case, Brooklyn tanks, then they're probably just going to be giving up their pick to Houston for a while. That way, of picks and pick swaps. I mean, uh, Brooklyn's roster is a bunch of you know is a mess too. Of course, they downgraded from having arguably the best offensive squad of all time with Kyrie, who sucks as a person it seems, but is an amazing basketball player. James Harden, who's an amazing basketball player. Kevin Durant, who's an amazing basketball player. All future Hall of Famers, all guys who can play on and off the ball, and all guys who can create at a high level. Uh, make no mistake, if those guys had been healthy at the same time in the playoffs, consistently throughout the playoffs, there would have been no beating them. That would have been the most dominant offense of all time because it would have presented defenses with an impossible problem to solve. Yeah, all three of those guys can play on and off the ball. All of them can pass. All of them sh can shoot threes. All elite creators. There was there would have been no way to stop them. Even like Durant. And one half of Harden almost beat the Bucks, who went on to win the championship. You got a healthy Harden in that series, the Nets probably win the championship. You got a healthy Kyrie, maybe. All three of them healthy, you're done. I mean, there's just no beating them. Uh, but, of course, things did not work out. James Harden asked out because of Kyrie's antics, basically sitting out the season, or most of the season, because he refused to get the vaccine. And then, of course, Kyrie asked out because I'm not going to get into Kyrie's tomfoolery. And then Durant asked out because he was the last one. And now Mikael Bridges is their best player. 
the Nets are in an unenviable position of just having a real mishmash of players, including maybe one of the worst contracts in terms of value on salary in the league, Ben Simmons, who has been horrible this season. He was incomplete, certainly, uh, up until this season, but not like awful. I mean, badly incomplete in a way that really hurt on offense. But this season, he's, he's just been dreadful. When he has played, he's been terrible. Uh, the Nets have $145 million in salary obligations next season, uh, though they can get under that number by waving Spencer Dinwiddie. Uh, it's fully non-guaranteed. So that leaves them at 120 up to 25, still very, very little in the way of cap space. You can wave Freud on it. Basically, they're not, getting, they're not getting to a point where they have cap space, and they don't have a very good team. And I'm sure, I mean, they can just trade every, everybody they have left for assets, which is basically just Bridges. Cam Johnson, whom they're presumably going to extend, uh, no, not extend. They're going to give him a new contract this offseason. He's, he's a restricted free agent. Cam Thomas has some uh, has some promise. Nick Claxton is a good center, but uh, altogether they don't really have a team capable of competing for anything. At the same time, you turn around and just dump everybody. Uh, maybe you're depending on oh, I'm going to sign some guys with cap space like we did in 2019. Though now compared to back then, I mean you don't have many good free agents hitting the market, and people saw what just happened. I mean, there's no guarantee you're going to be able to go and, and just sign a couple of superstars. It's worth looking back to 2019 and noting that the Nets didn't really want Kyrie if Durant were coming and weren't coming along. But you take Kyrie alongside Durant. I mean, Kyrie has gotten progressively more malicious in terms of how badly he's screwed over the teams. Played on. I mean, Cleveland was just, you know, I want to go off and, and be a leader. I don't want to play behind LeBron. Of course, he got to the Celtics. And found out that being a lead, you know, what came along with being the, you know, the leader on the court in terms of being the highest, you know, the, the number one option, the focal point of the offense was leadership and setting an example, neither of which he wanted to do at all. And on the way out, he completely screwed up with the Celtics in the series against the Bucks, just shot them out of the series and he couldn't have cared less. And then he left and they replaced him with Kemba, who was a downgrade and, and much too injured. Though, of course, the Celtics rebounded. And then he goes to the Nets and, you know, the rest is history there. <laughs> we'll see with the Mavericks. Yeah. So all of this is to say, I know I just talked about a team that most of you don't really care about, but would they trade me call? Meh, I don't know. Maybe they just scratch and gasp to be competitive to some degree, just to not give up good stuff to Houston. And uh, that's probably what I would do if I were them. Anyway, moving on to the Pistons. So uh, here's the, the scoop on Mikael Bridges. So since coming over to Brooklyn and the trade with the Suns, saw Durant going the other way. Mikael Bridges was the, the primary piece. Well, aside from the first round picks, and yeah, okay, those are important too. Anyway, so Mikal, we all know, is an Iron Man, a great defender. <laughs> like, there was this, this spectacle of horrible management in Philadelphia. Like, Steve Hinkie, uh, Sam Hinkie, excuse me, had built up quite a treasure trove of assets and, and, and set up his successors very well. Colangelo was a mess. Elton Brand was a disaster. Brett Brown got to be interim GM. For one draft after Colangelo got dismissed because of Burnergate. And the one thing he did was draft Mikal Bridges and everybody was super psyched. It's like, oh, you know, he played college in town. You know, he's, he's a hometown boy. And then, you know, and he's this kind of three and D wing that would have, who would have fit perfectly into that Sixers roster. And then Brett Brown deciding he's going to be a real smart guy trades him away for Zaire Smith, Pistons legend. Uh, and a first-round draft pick for Miami, which would later be used by Elton Brand to acquire Tobias Harris to play fourth option. And then Elton Brand would go on and max him and let Butler go, while also keeping Brett Brown as coach. And they would eventually replace him with Doc Rivers, who is, in my opinion, going to be the chief confounding factor this season, this offseason in the Sixers, 
potentially winning a championship because he's a horrible playoff coach. They're just bad. Uh, anyway, all that aside. Okay, Iron Man, great defender, uh, strong player, just just really really strong uh, three and D player uh, for the Suns. Just did it was pretty much uh, just just a perfect role player. Strong player, spacer again, strong defender, able to really play within any offense. Uh, and he's exploded since coming to the Nets. He's only played 16 games, but he's increased his scoring at his points per game from 17 to 26. Also increasing his true shooting from 57.5 to 63.5. And he's doing it on a very much more difficult shot diet. He was only attempting well, basically unassisted offense accounted for 29% of his, free, his field goals with the Suns. Now he's up to 45.6 with the Nets. So... Much, much more difficult shot diet, much bigger role, much higher usage, and he's just putting up a ton of points and even better efficiency. Now, what you ask yourself is, has he been unleashed or is he a regression candidate? I don't buy that this is just who he is. I think he's going to, to regress uh, to a degree. I mean, maybe maybe I'll end up being stupid for, for saying this, but I think he's likely to be that good, you know, that really viable number three option on the championship team. So somewhere in the middle. Now, does it make sense for the Pistons to draft uh, to trade pick number two or three? Uh, I would say no. They're not going to be called bridges away from contending. Uh, Scoot has a ton of upside, in my opinion. There's the fit question, but I'll talk about that a little bit later. And, and then there's Brandon Miller at number three, who I think has a lot of potential. Of course, the whole you know potentially knowingly giving a gun to somebody who wanted to commit murder is going to hang over his head until the draft, and that's really it's really just going to depend. So I don't buy that Mikal Bridges is like exploded into you know really a star scorer. And so, no, I wouldn't make that trade at number two. Probably not at number three either. Maybe I'll look like an idiot. Who knows? Another question before I get to Scoot, actually. Uh, why is Wiseman starting over Duran? Uh, Duran is struggling with injuries. Pistons would not be held holding him out unless there were good reason. They, I'm guessing that they just didn't really see much need to toss him back into the starting lineup right away. He was coming back from injury. They were conservative with him. He got injured again. Uh, I, I don't recall exactly... Uh, okay, this wasn't his ankles. This was a whiplash. Uh, whatever the case, I think also, I think beyond just bringing him back slowly, it's a question of the starting lineup being really, really offense light at the moment. Like you've got Jaden Ivey who can score and, and then you're playing Bagley and Wiseman together and that's basically like one and one quarter guys who can score. Um, so maybe the logic in playing the two of them together, maybe my thinking on playing the two of them together more offense isn't entirely work well because the guys have a horrendous amount of overlap. And only one of them is really going to go off in any given game. But maybe it's for the offense. Uh, maybe it's just for seeing what they got. Maybe it's just for getting the reps on the court. He hasn't gotten the reps on the court. And the big biggest question about Wiseman is how much is his poor decision-making the product of rawness versus just poor IQ? And make no mistake, some players just have poor IQ. Look at Bagley. This is an immediate example. He has been in the league. This is his fifth season. I'm sure, he spent a lot of time injured. But you know, unlike Wiseman, he's played a lot of minutes in the NBA. And he played a full season in college. But he's been bad since college at defense. Shashevsky had to make Duke play zone defense to protect him and Wendell Carter Jr. from the pick and roll because they could not defend the pick and roll. And well, whereas Wendell Carter Jr. has gone on to improve a great deal on defense, Bagley has not. And then basically it boils down to his defensive IQ being absolutely and utterly horrendous. You make him your primary interior defender at center, he's a complete disaster. And on the perimeter, I talked about this last episode. You make him, he's going to make a mistake eventually uh, on a lot of possessions, particularly if, if you put him through switches or make him rotate a lot. He's eventually going to screw up and you're going to get a good opportunity out of it. So, some players don't improve their IQ. And certainly at center, uh, being uh, like a, an outright poor defender, I mean, unless you're real good on offense, is kind of hard to stomach. So, 
I would actually say that it's probably the primary reason. I mean, even if Durham are in the lineup, which is not Wavy, but you know, when he's been back, I think it's a combination. It's Wardwich is bringing him back slowly, but I think also that's probably it. Getting Wiseman reps also a good thing. It's certainly been a little bit awkward because he and Bagley are the only bigs who are healthy on the roster right now with Stewart and Durant out. So it's one of them, one of them or the other on the court. They start together for the most part, and then I mean, you see. Uh, only Yuri, am I pronouncing his name right? Whatever, he's been on the team for like, I think like two weeks at this point and just seems to have decent potential. But for the most part, he's just playing minutes on a really bad team and, and getting an opportunity on a really bad team. Uh, something worth noting, you can only sign two 10-day two contracts. So if the Pistons wants to sign him to, and if they want to keep him on the roster, they have to sign him to an actual deal, actual standard NBA contract or move him to a two-way swap. They could just say goodbye, Buddy Beheim, who serves no perceptible purpose whatsoever. Seems to have extremely limited NBA upside because he's a relatively poor athlete and doesn't really, well, poor athlete with a bad wingspan who's going to have trouble on defense and is not an elite perimeter shooter. I don't know why he's holding a, a two-way contract spot. I mean, I can speculate. It's like the, the Syracuse connection, whatever. So kick him off, put Omiyori on there. Cool. Or you wave somebody like RJ Hampton, for example. But I don't think the Pistons are, meh, who knows. I don't really see anybody but potentially Hampton being waived. I mean, you're not going to wave Kojo. You're not going to wave uh, Magruder. These are both very well-loved guys in the locker room. And <laughs> I think you need all the help you can to keeping the locker room together down the stretch of this horrible season. And you could always get rid of Jared Broden as well. I feel like the guy is more NBA upside than Bayheim. Whatever. Both of them are disposable. It's Occasionally, you find a guy in a two-way contract who goes on to become a very useful role player. But it's, it's definitely very rare. I don't know a ton about Jared Broden. He hasn't really gotten a ton of time playing. But whatever. Anyway, he's played some small ball center, you know, when, when, when Bagley has been out. So, hope that answers the question. I think they were just bringing Durham back slowly, and uh, now he's out again. All right, <clears throat> so we spoke about Scoot. So, my next question, is Scoot really the second best player in this draft, and does he offer much more upside in comparison to Ivy? It's hard for me to peg who is the second best player in this draft right now. I mean, Miller has definitely made his case for number two, but what's happening with the whole gun thing is going to, again, it's going to, at the very least, it was spectacularly poor judgment. At the very worst, he knew what was happening. So I'm just not willing to make a statement right now as if I think the Pistons should even draft him. Of course, the police haven't charged him with anything. And by the accounts of the police department, they're not going to. But it's definitely something to think about. Uh, but in terms of Ivy, I would say Scoot does offer more upside to Ivy. So here's where I see the comparison. And bear in mind that Scoot is still pretty raw. His shooting splits aren't great. Um, but I think he's got a ton of upside. And I see some James Harden in this game. Uh, just as in, in his ability as a creator for, for himself and for his teammates. So 10 out of 10 athleticism across the board. I mean, the guy goes from 0 to 60 insanely fast and faster than Ivy, who I rated like 9.5 out of 10 athleticism, or maybe 9 because his verticality is only kind of like decent rather than really good, as you'd expect from a guy who has the elite acceleration and top speed that he has. So Scoot, much better leaping ability. Uh, he's smooth rather than jerky. I mean, he has extremely smooth elite athleticism. So I'd rank him above Ivy in that capacity, and Ivy is a very elite NBA athlete. Scoot, also better body control than Ivy. Ivy kind of has some issues with body control, and I, I think that plays into his difficulty in attacking the basket, which I'll get into. You know, I'm going to talk about that as well as I talk about where he is later in this episode and uh, his case for the all-rookie team. So Ivy doesn't really do as well with contorting his body. He just kind of goes right at it. And I think that's played a part in his difficulty in attacking the basket. Scoot has no such issue. Great body control. I mean, he's, he's super shifty and he has a much better handle than Ivy too, despite, you know, being two years older at this point. 
uh, two years younger, excuse me. Uh, they're almost exactly two years apart in age. Uh, better passing, more in the way of league guard skills. I mean, Ivy has made a lot of progress as a playmaker. I continue to think that he's going to top off his secondary playmaker because he's just a drive and kick guy. He's not really a guy who's going to judge a defense and make you know and, and make kind of like a, a high, a really high level read on just how to break it down. Just a drive and kick guy, which is helpful, but doesn't really lend itself to being kind of an elite playmaker. I mean, I'm definitely very happy with his progress. I'll put it that way, because prior to the season, I thought that one of his main question marks was the ability to make the right reads and passes off the drive and the willingness to, to make the right passes off the drive. He's been a very willing passer, and he's often found the open man. He has a share of turnovers, but he's made a ton of progress, and I'm happy with it. And I just I don't think his ceiling is that really high-level playmaker. Scoot, who knows about his defense, but a solid pull-up guy, like really solid pull-up guy. He's out of Ivy in that capacity despite being two years younger. And the worst three-point shooter at this point. But I see upside there because of his pull-up shooting. So uh, does he offer much more upside? I would say yes. I, I just think that he's likely to be a much more well-rounded player in terms of his ability to create both for himself and for others. Smoother athleticism. And in some ways, he's less raw than Ivy. Though definitely, of course, he's playing at the G League level, whereas Ivy is playing against the best players in the world. But also, the G League is no joke. It's just, I mean, it's one of the best leagues in the world. It's just a huge step down from the NBA. In terms of the fit. I'm not going to take Killian Hayes into account in this. Uh, Killian's definitely a handler. Killian has been, he's in year three, and he's still absolutely terrible. Uh, High-level playmaker, you know, elite court vision, great passer. Can't really take as much advantage of it as you would like because he is unwilling to attack the basket and cannot break down defenses off the drive. But a hard worker for the most part, though he's been a bit listless lately. Above average defender, not elite. Horrendous, absolutely terrible Tear your hair as a tear your hair out bad score, like comically bad, which really nukes his entire game. Uh, he, if you look at like if you look at the worst players in the league by efficiency by true shooting percentage, you'll find that Killian is about three percent worse. He's he's by far the worst in the league. We'll put it this way amongst qualifying players. Like we sort, for example, by like I don't know thirty games played, which is less than half of the season, and you know fifteen minutes average per game, which makes you a, a significant rotation player. Killian is, yeah, I think if I remember correctly, more than 3% worse than the second worst guy who was Dennis Smith Jr. He is, yeah, I'm not, I'm just not going to think about Killian. If he gets together, I, I say maybe a, a pretty good NBA backup, but he's not the kind of guy you take into account when you're making this decision. You have Cade, obviously, looking at as your primary hand or the future. Uh, you have Ivy, who does a lot of his good work on the ball as well. You bring Scoot into this. It's unlikely you're going to keep all of them on the team. Do you have the ability to develop all three of them? That's a consideration. Uh, so that's the point at which you you think about. And I mean, you, you have three guys who are all best on the ball. And I mean, you're never going to get the most out of any of them. It does present, again, developmental challenges. Miller, you're kind of looking more on the side of fit. And, and like I said, it's, it's just tough for me to think about him while this whole gun thing is hanging over his head. Because that'd be a pretty big deal. But I would call Scoot the second best player in the draft. I would call... His fit worse than Miller's, but I'd have trouble passing up on him, to be honest. All right, so let's get on to Ivy, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. Ready for the underdogs, the upsets, and the unbelievable action from DraftKings Sportsbook? The biggest tournament in college basketball is here. Right now, new customers can bet just $5 in college hoops and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. Plus, for a limited time, all customers can score a no-sweat bet during round one and two of the tournament. Go to the app, opt in, and place a no-sweat bet this weekend. If it doesn't hit, you get a bonus bet back up to $10. For example, obviously, you're going to bet, you know, if you're betting, you're going to bet on the Spartans, right? 
And with the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and sign up with code TBPN, your customers can bet $5 and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. Win or lose, only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code TBPN. Been a major duty restrictions apply, so showing up the details. Okay, so where is Jaden Ivey? We're going to go with a sort of new year, new you sort of analysis. First half of the season, or excuse me, in 2022 versus in 2023. 2022 contains just under half the games of the season. So we're getting close to being an equal number of games between the two years. So Ivy in 2022, 41-31.5 from three, 73% from the free throw line splits, 15 points, four assists, four rebounds, about five free throws average per game, close to three turnovers, 51.5% true shooting. And in 2023, same percentage from two, 41.2. He's up to 35.6% from three, still below 70s from the line. And 15 points, six assists, four rebounds, still averaging about five free throws. More turnovers because he's passing more. 52.8% for shooting, which is, you know, fairly significant improvement. Still below average, but an improvement. And it's worth noting, of course, since he's been passing more, his assist percentage, assist percentage is what percentage of the assists you are responsible for when you're on the floor. Oh, pardon me. Uh, it's percentage of teammate field goals you put player assisted uh, while that player is on the floor. So Ivy basically in 2023 is assisting on 28.5% of the field goals made while his teammates, or, you know, excuse me, while, but made by his teammates when he's on the floor. In terms of his shooting, it's sort of been opposite trajectory. So you would think that Jaden Ivy would be at his best attacking downhill with the ball in his hands and scoring in the basket. And in 2022, 58% from the restricted area, which is solid. Bad from three. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, from mid-range, bad as well. Uh, about 32%. And this was another one of those things going into the season was can he develop an in-between game so his opponents won't just completely abandon him when he's not either at the three-point line or the basket. So 32% from mid-range, which is real bad. 32% on above-the-break threes. He was still at about 37% on catch-and-shoots, but 25% on pull-ups, and he loves his pull-up threes. So in 2023... He is doing a lot better from three and a tremendous amount worse in the restricted area. 48.6% restricted area. Horrendous for anybody. Uh, just terrible. He's been having horrendous, just awful struggles to get into the basket. Like he just has trouble even penetrating, which is bizarre, you would think, for a player with his elite athleticism and decent handle. A decent handle as far as he's not just, you know, he can, he can maintain the ball when he's on his way to the basket. But he just has trouble getting past guys. And when he does get past them, he gets swatted at the basket a lot. Uh, on the plus side, uh, he's really improved in mid-range. Closing in on 45%, which is still not an efficient shot, but if you're left wide open, you know, it gives you a, a fair chance of making that. And though he's actually gotten worse on catch and shoots, he's improved up to 37%. He's 34% on catch and shoots. He's improved from 25% to 37% on pull-ups. So basically what you have here is a player who is still very raw. So still streaking from the three-point line, and I think he's going to need to revamp his form. And he's really struggling to get to the basket. Still turns over the ball quite a bit. His defense is absolutely terrible. And he's another player, kind of like Bagley, you look at. And you just hope that, because goodness knows he works hard. And he's got the athleticism to reposition and the wingspan to challenge. But he constantly finds himself out of position, sometimes literally spinning to try to find the man that he's supposed to be on. So we just hope that that's just a matter of needing to to acclimate to the NBA game. Because he wasn't a horrendous defender in the NCAA. The NCAA is the NCAA, but that's that's encouraging. At least Bagley was a horrible defender in the NCAA. Continues to give up a lot at the free throw line. Low 70s is not good enough, especially for a player who's going to want to, you know, who's who's probably going to draw a lot of free, continue to draw a lot of free throws in his NBA career as he attacks downhill. He's managed to maintain his numbers in 2023 in terms of how many free throws he's attempting. He's only a bit less than he was in 2022. 
And you just you can't weave that many points down there. I mean, low 70s is just straight bad in the NBA right now, and certainly for a guard. So still a raw player, has really improved as a passer. We hope that he can put together that restricted area scoring he showed in 2022. It's possible defense has just caught on, to the, caught on to the fact that they only need to play a certain type of defense against him to keep him away from the restricted area or really deny him good opportunities there because he's very predictable. He seems to just not really be able to plan where he's going to go ahead of time. And, and that's something he's going to need to do. Now, he has been thrust into a primary creator role by the absence of Cade. And presumably, he would have an easier time if he were playing more of a secondary role with somebody else to attract the attention. Goodness knows it's not going to be Killian. And then somebody else were, with a primary handler were able to break down defenses better. But he's, you know, you just see him go around a pick. And Dwayne Casey does him no favors by basically saying, just attack in isolation or I'll give you a simple pick. Often with a guy, Bagley or Wiseman, who's not even going to set a screw, proper screen for you because they both suck at it or really aren't all that willing. Rather, they just slip screens instead. And cool, then try to attack the basket in an offense that most likely doesn't have anywhere near enough spacing. And, and that doesn't do Ivy any favors, but he also is just struggling to do it. And Dwayne Casey, even when Kate is back, is not the coach to make these two guys work together since he just completely lacks the imagination on offense. But nonetheless, a more spread out offense with a, another creation threat who can also play make for others. I think that'll help Ivy next season and hopefully he continues to develop in that capacity. Now, moving on to his case for all rookie. Here's something to know for all rookie. I'm like all NBA positions don't matter. Last season, there were five guards and zero centers. The season before, there were five guards and one center. Uh, assuming last center, last season, you don't peg Mobley as a power forward. And for most of the season, he was not a power forward. That was, uh, excuse me, not a center. He was playing power forward because Jared Allen was on the floor with him or in the rotation with him. He played more center uh, during a period in which Allen was injured later in the season, but primarily a power forward. And that continues to be his primary position. So let's talk about the definitely's. There's Boncaro, needless to say, really the front runner for a rookie of the year right now. Has pretty much devolved into high volume, low efficiency lately, sub 50% true shooting in the last, uh, you know, from February 1st downward. Famously shot, I think it was either 2 or 3% from three in February, which is impressively bad. Basically, his, his efficiency is saved from being absolutely horrible. It wasn't really all that great before February, and it's saved from being horrible by the fact that he gets to the line a lot. He's basically a one-trick pony at this point. He scores in the restricted area. And that's about it. You know, for all that people point to his mid-range, I mean, he's shooting 38% from there. Uh, but he is averaging about 20 points per game. He's been one of the most notable rookies. The fact that he run rookie of the month in February was ridiculous. That really should have gone to Ivy, but whatever. So in any case, he's a shoo-in for all rookie. And I would say still the odds-on favorite to win rookie of the year. Jalen Williams, second best rookie. He's been great lately. And I saw him going into the draft as a very well-rounded player who's going to struggle because of his lack of athleticism, and he's not. He's not struggling at all, and he's been very, very good. He's the only guy who could realistically challenge Boncaro for rookie of the year, and he's a shoo-in. Matherin started strong, has really tailed off, but is also still a shoo-in because he's been <laughs> altogether still one of the best rookies. Keegan Murray has been a solid number four, number five option, especially strong from the perimeter. For a Kings team that is really surprised, he's been a solid role player. Not a ton is being asked of him, but he's been definitely a solid role player. Jalen Duran, second best center on the crop, that doesn't matter. But I think overall has been a really strong rookie. Whatever, we have, we've all seen him play. He still struggles on defense, but he's definitely made an impact. Walker Kessler has been a major surprise, and this just makes the Gobert trade hurt even more for Timberwolves fans, because while he is still nowhere near... I mean, Gobert is just a game-changing interior defender. Kessler isn't there. He's been very good. I don't think he's going to be quite as good in the playoffs because he'll have to switch, and he's not quite as great at that. But 
Uh, he's definitely going to make All-Rookie. And then you add Ivy on top. <clears throat> the other players who could probably make make it in there, I would say Sohan and Sharp. Sharp because he's super explosive and people love that. Sohan because you know he's, he's got really a lot of potential as a five-position defender if he can just shoot those threes. And he's, he's done some attacking off the dribble. Eason has an outside shot. None of these three guys are better than Ivy. In terms of who's not making it, uh, we're going to look at Jalen Smith Jr. Not Jalen Smith, Jabari Smith Jr., excuse me. Uh, Jalen Smith, of course, plays for the Pacers. Who has come on lately but had just an absolutely disastrous start to the season. I don't think he's going to be considered. Dyson Daniels, if the Pelicans had remained good, they did not. Ingram spent time injured. Zion, of course, has been out. I mean, Zion, man, potentially is a fantastic player who, thanks to that combination of a ton of bulk with you know, that he couples with just amazing agility for that size, explosiveness, and of course, skill. But those first three factors, you know, that bulk, that strength, you know, ability to take it, ability to, to knock guys out of the way. And uh, though he's still explosive as well, and, you know, and, and still a good leaper, just still super athletic, but that's hard in the body. That's really hard in the lower body. And I think that even if the guy to this stage had remained in perfect health, which he did not, the guy did not watch his weight and he has to be at the healthiest weight he can be at. And he's only going to get so low because the guy just naturally has a huge frame and is going to maintain a lot of muscle, but he's, he's got to be as low as he, he can reasonably get. And he did not. Even if he did everything right, I think he would have, the guy basically probably would begin just breaking down in his early 30s. Um, in any case, the Pelicans fell. Dyson Daniels has been extremely inefficient as a scorer. The difficulties that I foresaw with him coming into the league. He's not athletic. He can't really beat guys. I mean, he's he's got a very poor first step. He's not going to beat guys off the dribble. He's nothing special in terms of his shiftiness stacking the basket. And his shooting was a major concern for the G League Ignite. And both of those have continued to dog him into the NBA. And then there's AJ Griffin, who I just don't really think has done enough. There's Malachi Branham, who really hasn't been very impressive at all. So let's leave it here. Ivy is going to make the all-rookie team. Will he make the first team? Ben Carroll will be first team. Williams will be first team. Kessler will be first team. Murray will be first team. It's going to come down to Matherin or Ivy, and Matherin may get it on the basis of narrative alone because he had a very strong start to the season, though Ivy is. And he's continued actually to be a little bit more efficient than Ivy, but Ivy has taken on a much, much more difficult load in the starting lineup as the primary handler and has developed a lot as a passer. So it'll come down to the two of them for first team. I'd give the edge to Ivy at this point. I think it's been long enough since Matherin's strong start that he continues to have big games here and there. That he's not going to, that, that's not going to stick out in the eyes and the minds, rather, of the people voting for this award. And the people voting, you know, from the media are not always the, you know, I can't really necessarily depend on them. You like to think that you can to make a decision that is both informed and reasonable. So we'll see. I'd say if Matherin is going to win out over Ivy, it's going to be because of guys who are just looking at narrative and, oh, hey, he had a lot of big games at the beginning of the season. So that'll be it for this episode. Thank you, folks, as always, for listening. And I will catch you in the next episode.